questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? The second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Welcome to Restoring the Soul. I'm Michael John Cusick, and this is the podcast that helps you close the gap between what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the program. Just this morning, as I was preparing to record this introduction, I received an email, a quite surprising email, from a listener who lives in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. He was writing to share how much he had been encouraged by the Restoring the Soul podcast, specifically encouraged to live as a human being and not a human doer. That same person asked what other resources I would suggest to encourage growth in this area, and so I wrote back with a number of uh, book recommendations. But that got me to thinking. One of the reasons that I began this podcast was to be able to directly share the wisdom and insight and resources from the people that have impacted my life. So in that same spirit of sharing, I'm excited for you to listen today in this episode uh, to somebody who I think has a lot to say about being a human being and not just a human doer. So my guest today describes himself as a sonic architect who creates and composes music for film, television, and beyond. His name is Tony Anderson, and his musical work has been featured on promotions for National Geographic, GoPro, Delta Airlines, ESPN, and Ford Motor Company. Along with being a sonic architect, Tony Anderson is the executive producer of the soon-to-be-released film The Heart of Man, which will be playing in theaters around the country on September 14th. In this conversation, we're going to dig deep into what that movie is all about, how it came to be about, and um, what they're hoping for with that movie. But apart from all that famous stuff, Tony has become a dear friend over the last several years, and he is an ally in the restoration of souls. He unashamedly shares his own story to give others hope so that they can live an authentic and integrated life. To learn more about Tony and his work, just visit TonyAndersonMusic.com. My friend, Tony Anderson, welcome to the program. Oh, my friend, Michael Cusick, thank you. I hope this ends up being a gift instead of a a liability and that your uh, listener database goes up by approximately 2 million listeners per week. Well, that's what I'm hoping for. And after my soon-to-be YouTube video of me jumping off my roof into a vat of Jell-O, I think that that it will soar to 2 million. (laughs) But listen, you've, you've been spending a lot of time in the last couple of years on this new project that I want to talk about, uh, and that is this movie that's being released called The Heart of Man. The Heart of Man, yes. Tell me about the movie for our listeners who, who are uninitiated. It's, it's been both a, a gift and it's been the bane of my existence. Uh, the project's been going on for about seven years, and um, it started with uh, me and my buddy Derek uh, 2009, 2010. And, uh, now is probably in the hands of close to 120 different people. And it, uh, it's a film and it releases, uh, in September, September 14th nationwide, uh, theatrically in, um, I think about 700 screens, 700 theaters nationwide right now. And people may have seen on social media, Facebook, Twitter, there has been a very, very popular and widespread 
trailer for that because you've got some big names in this film. We have some big names or as uh, many of my friends would call them, big heretics. And yes, we we released a series of trailers over the years, really testing the concept, um, you know, because the concept is really a question, which is, does God love me in my brokenness? And what do I do with my shame? You know, is that some sort of barrier between he and I? Is it a bridge? Uh, does he does the father like me? Does he even enjoy me? Um, if I, if I screwed up too far, if I, if I gone too far, the basic fundamental questions about our behavior and where God is at locationally, that's what the uh, film is asking. And the process of, uh, us making a film about that has been pretty messy and very nonlinear because we're all in process. You know, everyone that really helped make the film was a millennial. And so our minds change about every other week <laughs> as we come across new information and new experience with the father. Uh, so yeah, it has been very nonlinear, uh, but we did just release the trailer and we've gotten great feedback, uh, mostly from Latin America. Actually, someone uh, down there is um, in the process of helping us get distribution all throughout Latin America. And I actually think the film will probably communicate better in Latin America um, in, in the Middle East and in Asian nations than it will in the U.S., although I'm excited about what it will do here. Why do you think that it'll uh, impact in those countries in that way? Oh, man. So this is uh, – the film is a parable. Uh, all it is is a retelling of the prodigal son, or if I'm Tim Keller, I'm going to say the prodigal father, you know, uh, parable. And it's just a story. And you could actually rip out all of the uh, the other elements of the film because the film is a story and it's talking head interview uh, mixed and they're blended together. The MPAA said they had never – seen a film like this. So they had to come up with a new category for it because it's both a film and interviews. And so you could strip away the interview content and just have the prodigal son uh, story without any language, without any speaking. And you could show this to a lot of different cultures who see God and experience God in a much more visual story uh, driven way, a much more oral way. Um, and they get it. They find themselves in the story right away. Um, and there's not this block that we seem to have here in um, the West, specifically in the United States, where things have to make logical sense, where everything's kind of on a grid. Um, it seems like other cultures tend to, to view things more in a, in a circular realm. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. Hey, let me ask you, because uh, I've got a bunch of questions just as you're talking. You talked about the millennials changing their mind and changing things you were learning. How, how did you personally kind of shift and what new questions did you start to wrestle with or as you were going through this process? Oh, man. Well, you know, our friendship together burst out of uh, out of that. But um, I, I uh, grew up in a home that was very um, Christian, a very evangelical Christian, the type of people that would, you know, have Trump bumper stickers on their uh, cars and probably still do. I love you, mom. Love you, dad. Anyway, um, you know, grew up in a home where uh, our uh, political affiliation and our religious affiliation were kind of unified. And so um, growing up in that sort of environment, um, I, I don't want to say that it wasn't real, but it was it was very different from the experience that a lot of people have with God in other places in the world. And I got exposed to that actually by uh, getting dared into going to a Christian Bible college uh, by the time I was a um, – maybe 18. 
and uh, ended up at a Bible college and dove really deep into hermeneutics, uh, into the biblical languages, into apologetics, into knowing the right things. Uh, but my own life was out of control. And uh, my own behavior, specifically my sexual addiction and my neurological addiction to pornography were growing. So it, <laughs> it didn't make any sense. I'm memorizing more scripture, engaging in more spiritual disciplines, and my behavior is getting worse. And uh, at the end of this, in, when I graduated in 2009, I kind of had to look at the two and go, I'm, I'm either the biggest hypocrite I've ever met or I'm missing something here. And what did you conclude? <laughs> uh, you know, I shut down. Um, I felt like I was just an unsafe person to be around. I didn't have any healthy long-term relationships. Um, I was just starting to come to grips with the pain I had caused others in my childhood and the pain that had been caused uh, to me in my childhood. And, um, and generally just felt like a scared, uh, hurt little orphan, especially when it came to, uh, the way I related to God. Um, and I, I, uh, did what anyone does in the millennial generation, which is instead of really engaging your own internal brokenness, you go and join a cause, <laughs> right? Like uh, if, if your own story is too painful, uh, you know, let's go get involved and help people. Right. And, and I think a lot of that for me and for many of us has to do with our own insecurity and, and we don't want to feel like we're doing something wrong or perpetuating something bad. So we try to go attach ourselves to something that has purpose and momentum. So I actually started running uh, sound for my buddy Derek's production company and we went all over the world. We were in Southeast Asia. We were in South Africa for months um, documenting uh, sex trafficking, human sex trafficking. And we would be in these crazy dark places with a lot of oppression and a lot of, uh, very blatant human and sex trafficking right out in front of us, uh, with women and children. And, um, that was another, oh no moment for me, uh, because the intellectual, uh, version of God I had built in my mind could not support the real world trauma I was seeing with my eyes and then experiencing in my own soul, because we were starting to connect the dots to uh, the from the porn industry to the sex trafficking industry. So I'm kind of going at the end of the night when we get out of, uh, of filming and um, and I go home and I'm sleeping at night. I can't sleep because I'm recognizing my use of porn may have been directly contributing to this thing that we're trying to stop. Yet I can't stop looking at porn. So that was uh, a big oh no moment for me. And um, I would say about three more years of that and my life actually did collapse. And I got to the point where uh, I had to acknowledge uh, to God that I, I really desperately uh, needed help with my relationship with him because I hated my relationship with him. It didn't feel real. It didn't feel grounded on any sort of real transformation. And I didn't feel like I had anything to give anybody. So this whole conversation on Christians have to go out there and disciple people and we need to you know, replicate the life of Christ. I'm like, uh, it's, it's not even present in my own life. I don't have any bread to give away to anybody. If anything, I'm the starving kid who needs bread. Um, and I couldn't connect the dots on why I had memorized vast swaths of the New Testament, taken a very sizable deep dive in hermeneutics, gone and put myself on the front lines of human injustice and still came up more empty than I was at the beginning of it. Wow, that's that's saying a lot, and I appreciate your honesty. Of course, I I have that same story maybe 20 years before you, but I think so many 
men and women can relate to this output, output, output for God, and it's not taken me where I wanted to go. Yeah. Um, you use the word that, you know, life collapsed, and it strikes me that this movie, The Heart of Man, um, I know many people were involved in the beginning of it, but you're the executive producer of it. And would it be fair to say that the that the idea for the movie came out of your own life and faith collapsing? Absolutely. Absolutely. It actually uh, came from uh, reading one day in Psalm 51, where I'm reading David and he's saying, God, would you create something new at the heart level inside of me? Would you do this? And then I'll teach transgressors your ways. And so I connected the dots that if David could acknowledge that something had to happen in him before he had anything to teach anyone else, that I needed to go through the same process. I didn't hash out all the new covenant stuff when I read it. I didn't get all exegetical. I just kind of took David at face value and recognized, I think it was 2013 when I met you and I came to the first um, extended uh, kind of men's weekend. What's it called now? What have you rebranded it? Uh, it's uh, the Surfing for God weekend is now called the Restoring Freedom weekend. We met that weekend face to face, but we actually started talking about a month after Surfing for God came out, which is uh, you started kind of doing research for the movie. Yeah, and Surfing for God is the only thing that made sense because when I say my life collapsed, I meant that um, my adolescent behavior could no longer support the new thing that was growing inside of me. Um, my old ways of relating and reacting could not support and deal with this new life that God had already birthed in me and that was coming to bear. And so surfing for God made uh, loads of sense because I went, finally, A, someone's being honest. So how did this guy even get published? He's talking about porn um, not as something that is uh, an issue but a symptom. So he's asking what's the 90% beneath the issue that is causing this? I thought this is this guy's brilliant. And then you were very raw. Uh, it was May of 2013. You were very raw about your own journey. And you helped equip a lot of us uh, to learn how to be transparent and vulnerable with other men. Eye contact. I had never had sustained eye contact with a man in my entire life. It scared the hell out of me. And I, uh, I came back from that weekend profoundly changed because I felt that when I was looking into the eyes of other broken men, I was actually looking into the eyes of Jesus. I know that sounds a little crazy mystical like i've been on some island um you know with rob bell and william paul young uh doesn't sound doesn't sound crazy at all but it was a uh, that was a weekend that there was a shift where i stopped um paying attention to my track record with porn with uh sexually acting out and with my behavior and i started moving closer towards uh the belief that there was a god not just out there but in me uh who loved me and wanted to have a conversation with me that had nothing to do with my behavior. I had never heard of that. Legitimately never heard of that. What I had heard and what I believed was that if my bad behavior persists, God is distant, he's disengaged, he's disinterested, and then I've got to do something to get back into relationship with him so that either A, more miracles can happen, or B, more disciples can get made. So it's still about output, and Tony's the liability stopping the output of the kingdom of heaven because he can't stop looking at porn. And the crazy thing was when I had this conversation with the majority of my friends, they all agreed. So we would all try really hard to fast longer and pray more and memorize more scripture. And we were all just more depressed at the end of it. Um, so 2013 really was uh, the life-saving collapse of all collapses that uh, changed and will continue to change the trajectory of my life forever. 
So, Tony, let me ask you, and we've had other conversations about this. Uh, you believe, and I believe, that that kind of collapse, and we might use different words for it, uh, dismantling, collapsing, uh, stumbling, failing, suffering, brokenness, that that's necessary to go to that deeper place where the gospel becomes real and not just an idea, but yeah. something that's fleshed out inside. Oh, absolutely, because God is a person, and he is relational before he is intellectual or moral. That's how he's revealed himself to humanity since the very beginning. Uh, He has been relational before he has ever been moral. And uh, his morality only has grounding, and it only has precedent in the context of actual relationship. So what happened with me was I had a lot of information about God, a lot of theology, a lot of quote-unquote right ideas about how things ought to be done, but I had no real experience with God as a person. And the tough thing is that the only thing that translates to the world is raw experience with God. Um, it's an aroma. It, you know, their BS meter is pretty high out in the world. And so if I, if I don't carry that aroma, but I just carry a whole bunch of thoughts, I resemble someone who is trying to change how they think instead of someone who has been transformed and is not trying to control them. Talk to me about what you mean by experience, because some people will hear that and go, oh, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I'm going to go to uh, a Jesus Culture conference, and the music is going to be awesome, and I'm going to worship, and I'm going to experience God. And that's legitimate. I've had things like that happen in the past, but you're talking about a different kind of experience. Oh, man, I am. And this is a tough one, because I've had, uh, I've seen creative miracles take place in front of me in a dozen countries in the world. I've been to some of the best worship environments uh, on planet Earth. I've seen demons driven out of people, but none of those um, transformed me, right? In fact, one time when I was in a room seeing a lot of people get physically healed, uh, God actually told me, he he whispered in my heart, I want to do for your heart what I'm doing for their bodies. So um, he has led me into more of a contemplative uh, silence with him where right now experience with him is, is simple. It's just learning to be present with God, where I'm not performing, I'm not obeying, I'm not disobeying, uh, I'm not making disciples, I'm not impressing him or anyone else with my uh, large uh, treasury of intellectual information, which is you know unrivaled since the beginning of time. I, 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 I'm just Tony. And my closest friends here in town will tell you that that journey of who is Tony apart from what he does, that is a new journey for me. I don't know who I am apart from what I do uh, to provide or to work or to entertain or to perform or even to obey God. The, The question of who am I when I'm just being present with God, which I believe will be the thing that will happen most frequently in eternity is just pure, unadulterated joyful, rested presence. What does that look like now? And it looks like a lot of contemplative uh, silence with God, which right now is very painful for me. Very painful. So let me interrupt you and say, I want to hear about why it's painful. I want to hear more about the contemplative uh, direction that you're taking. But we're going to do a part two for this interview, and I'd really like to unpack that more. Just for a couple more minutes, I want to come back to the movie. Um, It was this collapse that led to you really wrestling with the question, um, uh, how does God meet broken men and what can happen in our brokenness, uh, both on the personal level and for the kingdom? So tell me about 
then how the movie came about. And you were also deeply involved, not only in the executive producing, but you composed and did all of the orchestral music. I did, yes. So I'm a composer by trade, and um, I was given a great team and a great budget to work with uh, on, on this project. And so the music was really my element. Um, but where the direction of the film changed was uh, really the initial concept and initial drafts for the film in 2011 and 2012 were a lot of pastors from the Reformed and Restoration Movement Church here in the U.S. talking about how to get out of sexual brokenness. If you're a guy, here's how to get free. And the problem was uh, none of it lined up. And with all due respect to all of the people who contributed, it didn't really change because I did all the things they told me to do and it didn't work. So really the fresh approach came uh, when, when my life started getting deconstructed in 2013, when we just focused on the father. Who is the father? What is he like? What's his essence? And where is he locationally? Is he separate from me or is he one with me? That's, that's the fundamental question that changed the entire thing. And I think for that reason, the film got really good. It, and really, a lot of people have told us that the film needs to be called The Heart of the Father instead of The Heart of Man, although it is about uh, the Father's heart for mankind. So that's, that was the big seismic shift there. So who is this movie for? Mm, this movie is actually for me. I know that sounds uh, self-centered, but I'm a millennial. So, you know, am I capable of saying something not self-centered? I don't know. We'll find it's It's, it's all about you anyway. So, <laughs> Oh, my goodness. If millennials started a church, yeah, it would be fantastic. It would be craft coffee. Everything would be small batch, small batch, handcrafted, and none of us would know that we were handcrafted, single-barrel, small-batch creations from heaven. It would be fantastic. <laughs> anyway, um, so uh, the film is for me. It, it, I, I wanted to make a film that could take the complexities and the confusion of what American uh, evangelical Christians have made the gospel and make it understandable again to the average person, to the gay and lesbian and transgender person, uh, to the person who thinks God is, uh, is kind, of, uh, kind of an idiot and kind of vindictive and kind of distant. Um, because that's where I was, and in some days still am, is, in my view of where God is locationally and what he thinks about me. So the film was for me, and, and I took that idea from Henry Nowen, who wrote In the Life of the Beloved. Uh, the goal of his book was um, to make the gospel simple for one of his Jewish friends. Um, and it actually helped Christians more than it did his Jewish friend and actually changed uh, several of the lives of my friends and um, mentors in my life. So that was the goal. If it can affect me, if it could change something in me, if it could move me, then it might uh, move other people. And so as people watch this, do you imagine that it will be for men and women and couples and people all across the church as well as people outside of the church? Yes, 100%. We've actually had better feedback from people who don't have a religious uh, vernacular, who don't have experience uh, in church, specifically from women and women of color, which gets me the most excited because uh, we finally have made something that the target demographic is not white uh, males in, in the U.S. between 18 and, you know, 70. So yes uh, is the answer, and I think it's going to be great uh, for couples, though – my close friends who have watched it um, have not wanted to watch it with their wife because they fear a sense of condemnation or shame for their behavior. So they actually uh, find a time when their wife is usually gone and they watch it alone and they get wrecked. Many of my friends have said they just weep through the film the first few times 
which when I first started encountering God's love, I had the same reaction. It wasn't in a film format, but I wept for the better part of a year because I had no idea how good God was. I I, I still don't know, but I definitely did not at the beginning of the journey. And I think the film gets the essence of his eyes, his heart, his embrace, uh, his tone of voice, um, his fierceness, not against us, but for us. I I think it hits those. I think the team did an incredible job um, and I'm incredibly proud of them. And so we're going to fade out from episode one here. Uh, what's the website for the movie if people want to check that out? Ah, it is heartofmanmovie.com. People can get tickets there. They can learn more about the release details there. We will also have some incredible curriculum uh, following up that comes with the film. Uh, I think they're going to call that Face of the Father. And it's a series of roundtable discussions that dig deeper into what the film breaches in its original form. So yeah, heartofmanmovie.com. Well, it sounds so powerful the way that it's turned out. We've kind of journeyed as friends from a distance uh, throughout the whole production, and I'm so happy that it's finally going to be available. Man, thank you. Well, and you know, I've told you this before, but you pioneered this and spearheaded this in my life. I think if you wouldn't have taken that risk to offer me something that could bring me into a place of wholeness, none of this would have happened. In fact, I was ready to give the film up before I came up. Uh, to Colorado to see you guys and only when I left did I recognize that uh, it was worth an attempt and I thank God for you and for Jonathan and so many others along the way well I'm so glad that you did come up and I'm so glad that you kept with the movie so thanks so much for your time on this episode and thank you looking forward to part two you've been listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick Produced by Brian Beatty and supported by generous listeners like you. To learn more about our life-changing intensive counseling process for couples and individuals, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. You already know we live in a pornified world, but most of us are at a loss for how to navigate this sea of temptation. It's either ceaseless striving on the one hand or giving in to brokenness on the other. But doesn't the gospel offer us another way? The truth is that our sexual struggles are not actually about sex, but about a misdirected, God-given longing for deep connection. Dig deeper in my book, Surfing for God, Discovering the Divine Desire Beneath Sexual Struggle. 